Welcome to the weekly message from Encounter, where your past has no future and hope is reborn. Our speaker today is Bishop Michael Rice, lead pastor at Encounter. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. If you were in the spirit, you knew that already. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Past tense. It's an event, if you know the the language here, it's an event that took place a long time ago that has an effect now. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoptions, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Would you stretch your hands this way and pray with me and for me this morning? Father, I just ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to direct me as I unburden my heart with what you have put on it. Holy Spirit, I know you're the real teacher here. You're the real preacher here, and I I rest myself in you this morning. Speak to us. Speak to your bride this morning, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Last week, we talked about fleeing or escaping victimhood. We, we, we started with Deuteronomy 30, where God said, 3015, where God said, See, I have set you before you today life and good, death and evil. Share with you that there is a spirit that has long roamed this planet, and this this spirit invites us to move into his neighborhood. Cost of entry is universally available. It requires only that you have suffered some kind of loss or faced some kind of battle. Does that describe anybody? Anybody in here ever suffered any kind of loss? Anybody facing a battle? So all of us have the minimum requirement to enter into this neighborhood. In this hood, you can find camaraderie with other like-minded people. In this, his hood, you often find compassion and attention and even meaningful relationships. And of course, the name of the hood is victimhood. The enemy will give you, this adversary, this spirit will give you a lot of reasons why you and I should move into that hood. But there are two good reasons why we need to escape it. Number one, nobody in victimhood is ever cured. Secondly, nobody in victimhood goes to heaven. My wife and I have shared with you when we first came here, and it hasn't changed, we... We, we have two goals in mind, and they are singular, and they're what drives us. They, they are the filter, if you will, that, by which we, we 
run our decisions. And, and that is this. Number one, we intend to go to heaven. And that may seem like a silly thing, but, you know, we've been in the ministry now more than three decades. And I want to tell you, I, I, I've seen a lot of decisions and, that pastors have made. And, and I've seen the things that they've done. And I wonder if they even stop for a moment and think about, can you go to heaven with this kind of a decision-making process? If your goal is to go to heaven at the end of your life, you don't do stuff like this. Does this make sense? Will this hinder my ability to get into heaven? Will this draw me far? I know I'm not earning my way into heaven, but, but, but if my mind is a wreck and my life is a wreck because my mind is a wreck and I'm making stupid decisions, it will draw me away from God. And so we have this goal. We intend to go to heaven. There is no amount of money. There is no amount of popularity. There is no amount of influence that will dissuade us from that reality. I don't care whether I'm politically correct. I want to be scripturally correct in what I do. We have this goal. We are intending to go to heaven. We can go to heaven broke and busted and hated and spat on. And we can go to heaven rich and increased with goods. We can go to heaven either way, but we're going to heaven. If we're going to go to heaven blessed or struggling, we are going to go to heaven. And secondly, we intend to make, take as many people with us as we can take. It's as simple as that. We want to do all that we can so that you and God get into a relationship that is of the nature that takes you to heaven. Because if our relationship with God only satisfies needs down here, the scripture says if we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are above all men most miserable. And so much preaching that's going on today in America and on the airwaves deals with life in the here and the now, forgetting that we are eternal beings and and this life is but a moment, a vapor, a cloud that passes away quickly. And if we live our whole life and we only engage God in for the here and the now, we are of all people most miserable. And so we, we looked up in Webster's Dictionary the definition of a victim. There were three definitions. One that is acted on and, and usually adversely affected by a force or a person. One that is injured or destroyed. We're not talking about that person because all of us are that. All of us have been acted upon by another individual or a force or an entity in a way that has adversely affected us. But the second definition is one that is tricked or duped. Third, one who has been sacrificed to a de deity or a god. Those are victims who live in victimhood. Not the first, but the second and the third. There are those that are living Christians that are living in the hood called victimhood who have made a singular event in their life become their lifestyle. Their whole life now revolves around that singular event. They, they can't let go. They, they can't release. They can't get victory over. They can't move past that. It, 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 it drags behind them. Years ago, Paul wrote a verse that said, Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
You have to know the Roman custom back then. The custom back then was, was if you were found to be guilty of a murder, but if they were not absolutely sure, absolutely sure that you are guilty, they wouldn't put you to death, lest they put to death an innocent person. What they would do was they would fasten to you the body of the person that you were suspected of killing. And you would literally live the rest of your life dragging that around. And you're literally looking for somebody who can stand for your innocence and testify on your behalf that you be delivered from this body of death. And if nobody's found, if nobody steps forward, if nobody says something, that individual then is just driven into madness, if not consumed with disease of having a rotting corpse on their back. If they deliver themselves, if they try to take the body off, that's a sign of guilt and then you're punished with death. So when Paul told the Roman church, who will deliver me from this body of death? They had a picture to go with that story. Those that live in victimhood, they they carry it around. It was a one-time event that happened to them. It may have been short-lived, it may have been a drawn-out process, but they now carry with them And it flavors everything. It invades their thinking and their thoughts, their dreams, their visions. What they hear, what they say, what they do is consumed with this. It's constantly right there. We're not talking about somebody who's going through the normal process of grief. We're talking about somebody who has taken on grief as a lifestyle. And over time, it changes the way that they think. It changes the way that they see life. They... They have lost their understanding that that an event was never meant to be a lifestyle. It's the young lady who is miserable in her marriage. And will spend a lot of time looking at her wedding photos. Because that was the only time it was good. It's the man who can't get out of sports. He is a grown man, and he now has responsibilities, and he risks his life or his health to engage himself in sports that are better left to younger men. I've known families that were devastated because the 35-year-old man didn't know you don't do that anymore. You're a man now. You... I'm not saying you crawl in a hole. I'm, I'm just saying that there are certain risks you don't take because of the the, 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 the and, and and the family was destroyed financially because he he got hurt in such a way that kept him from making a living the way he used to and and it was just a weekend game. How, how many hear what I'm saying? But but you see this this was because he resided in victimhood. He, his life right now wasn't any good, so he thought back to the days when. He could do that stuff. Listen, if you're 50, you're not 18 anymore. I'm reminded of that. I I used to love running, and I'm going to get back to doing it. I I should just love to take off and just start running. And and I, I grew up in a house that the house was a little over a half a mile from the road. And and the barn was down at the road, and that's where all the chores were. And it was nothing to just take off and run a half a mile to the barn. 
do your chores and run a half a mile back. There was a time in high school I ran six miles before school. Now, late at night, I'll take the dog out for his late at night. And I'll take off running like I'm 18 again. And my body said, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what's that? What, 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 what are you trying to do? We're going to hurt you if you keep this up. We have little or no influence in what comes our way, but what we do with the stuff, what we do with life is up to us. We are either victims or we are victors. We are either overcome or we are overcomers. I cannot influence what comes down the road into my life. I I cannot determine whether or not I'm going to run into a drunk driver. I can't determine what's going to, to happen. A number of years ago, I think I was probably 30 years old. And my wife and I were working, helping a lady out, at, a widow lady out at her house and cleaning it. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel good. And I told Gilbeth, I said, we're done for the day. I'm just, I just need to go home. Make a very long story short, my heart started giving me issues. And I remember to the point I laid down on the, on the carpet. And we had attempted to drive to the hospital. And, and we left in the car. And I was telling her where to go. And... And then I couldn't think straight anymore. And I remember at one point sitting in an intersection and she's asking me, where do I go? Where do I go? And I said, I I, I can't think straight. I don't know. Let's get back to the house. And this was before cell phones. So we had to go back to the house so we could make a phone call. And I remember laying on the floor and thinking, I'm going to die. And the squad's showing up and they're they're checking me out. And they hook up an IV and there's our oldest son. He was, what, four years old? five years old at the time, and he's holding the IV bottle. And I remember the, 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 the stress on the paramedic's face as he's saying to the guys, let's go, let's go, we're losing him. And I'm thinking, God, I'm 30 years old. I have a wife. I've got a, I've got a son. Who's going to take care of them? We're broke. We're broke, God. There's, there's nobody to pay the bill. There's no insurance. They're going to be in destitution if something happens. And I had no control over that. I had no control. I'd always felt like I was one who could control what my body did. My body didn't want to run six miles in the morning, but I could make it do it because I was in control. But in this moment, I wasn't in control, and I couldn't get it to behave. I remember my inner conversation with God. God, this is not what I want, but at the end, I trust you. Because in spite of how much I love my son and in spite of how much I love my wife, you love them more than I do. Don't ask what happened. I'm, I'm here. We can't influence what comes our way, but we have a lot to do with how we handle that. Spent six days in intensive coronary care unit at Riverside Methodist Hospital, and they, they knew there was a problem with the heart. They said it stopped numerous times on my way to the hospital, and, and yet they couldn't find what was wrong. And Now I'm $20,000 in debt, as if that's good for the heart. 
released from the hospital and thinking somehow it was over. And then it occurring again and going back. And a number of days more and another $20,000 of debt. And I remember one, one night, I, the enemy pushed me too far. And the Holy Spirit rose up inside me and I'm laying there in that bed and and he came into my room and he said, where's your God now? You prayed for others and seen them healed. Where is your God now? And all of a sudden it came to me. He's right here. He hasn't left me. I'm still here because he's still here. Within just a short time, I was released from the hospital and, and God just is still God. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 9. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Those that live in victimhood, they are destroyed. They are crushed. They are put down. Their life, their thoughts, their decisions are influenced by that. We, we can't do this. They told me when they released me from the hospital, we, we, the only thing we do know is there's something wrong with electrical firing in your heart, and you have to be very, very, very careful. Make sure you stay near medical facilities, and make sure those around you know, and make sure you don't strain yourself, and make sure you don't live under pressure. Just make sure. It's kind of like the guy and his wife. They go to the doctor, and he's had some issues with his heart, and the doctor checks him out, and doctor brings the husband and wife in the room and he said, sir, I need to talk to your wife alone. If you'll go out into the waiting room. And so the husband goes out into the waiting room. Doctor says to the wife, listen, your husband has heart problems. They are so severe, we cannot fix it. Here's what you need to do. You need to make sure he has no stress in his life. Don't expect him to do any work. Don't expect him to help. Don't say no to him. Don't cause him any problems. If he's sitting there and he wants a sandwich, get him a sandwich. If he wants to go lay out back, let him lay out back. If he wants you to clean the house, make sure you clean the house. Whatever you do, don't make him do anything or he won't live. I said, I understand. I appreciate it. She got up and she walked out of the doctor's office and she told her husband in the waiting room, come on, let's go. They're on their way home. The man turned to his wife and said, what did the doctor say? She said, honey, he said you're about to die. You're, it's, it's over. You don't stand a chance. Those that are in victimhood, everything they see, hear, feel, seek, is a subconscious way of seeking another wound. 
Now listen to me for a moment. There is nobody in this room that intentionally does things to get more wounds. I understand that. But listen, one of the deceptive things about being deceived is that you're deceived. If we are self-deceived, then we can't trust our own judgment to tell us we're deceived. Does that make sense to you? If you, if you believe that this color is green and you're sure it's green, you have to find another source of information that will tell you, no, in actuality, that's black. Because when you see it, you see green. If something has happened in your life to teach you that that was green, then you will think it's green until somebody comes along and helps you to understand differently. Does that make sense? And so when, when, when a victim is living in victimhood, they, they, don't, they don't consciously sabotage relationships, but they do. They sabotage them. There will be moments and there will be times of, of happiness, but those will be short-lived because subconsciously they feel uncomfortable in that neighborhood of happiness. They feel uncomfortable with things going well. They're only comfortable if they can see problems and they can experience heartache. And so they, they marry the wrong people. She was a wonderful person. She was warm and intelligent and kind. And yet she, and she loved God passionately. And yet she would marry the wrong person after the wrong person after the wrong person. And if they didn't die, they left. And her story is so fitting. She talks of the time when she's, you know, at one time she had a beautiful home that was paid for. She had a, a high-paying job. But now, through a series of marriages to people who thought it was okay to drink and get drunk and gamble, she's now got nothing. And they were renting an apartment for just a little bit of money and he had squandered away what they had and they were forced to move. And, and as she tells it, she said, we're driving down the road and I'm, I'm following him and here he is with his stupid little pickup truck. And she says, and I look and I say to myself, how did my life get here? I used to have a beautiful home that was paid for and beautiful furniture. She loved fine things. And she said, now everything I own is in the back of a pickup truck. And I had to move under eviction to another place where you pay your rent by the week. She says, and I'm looking at the back of the pickup truck and everything we own is in the back of that. And she said, and most of it, it's his stuff. She says, and, and pastor, as I'm driving, I, I look and, and she said, the only thing on that pickup truck that I still value was a rocking chair that had been passed from my great-grandmother to my grandmother to my mother to me. And she says, I'm looking at that and thinking, that's all I got left of my life. And she said, literally, as I'm looking at it, it falls off the truck and hits the highway and it's splintered into pieces. And I, I, I'm, I laugh at it too. It's, 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 it's funny, but it's not. 
to her as she's telling me that. She's crying. She said, I'm thinking, what happened to my life? Well, she moved into the hood. She married that bum because she thought she didn't deserve any better. Turn to the person next to you if they're your spouse and say, that ain't what happened to us. I'm just making that clear. That ain't what happened to us. But they manage their life subconsciously in a way that they can't be happy. And they're hard to live with because if they say green and you get them green, they wanted a different shade of green. You, they tell you, I want to go here and you take them there. But I wanted to go next month. I mean, I want to talking about I want you to do this, but not like that, and not like this, and appreciate the effort. It was nice. Do you have the receipt? Because they have been duped, they now live their life, sacrificed to a strange God. A God who doesn't care. If he cared, that would not have happened. If he cared, there's the if. If he cared, they'd still be here. If he cared, we wouldn't be broke. If you be the son of God. If God cared. If that were true. If God was a God of compassion. If that pastor, if that husband, if that wife, if that child, if that neighbor, if that evangelist. If, 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 they live in if. If only this had happened, then the truth of the matter is that every one of us has pain. Every one of us has suffered loss. Every one of us have had life throw at us things that were challenges. But these people have made it a lifestyle. Even when good things come, they pronounce them bad. God who doesn't care a strange God. And yet God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, he said, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments. I'm a child of God. Things that come into my life have been filtered by Him. They they have gone past His inspection process and He has one singular goal in mind and that is to get you in heaven. What a cruel God that would make you happy down here but that causes you to miss heaven. He has this one singular goal, Tim, to get you into heaven. Now, he would like to do it by being good to you. He would like to do that by things always going right. But listen, we walk away from God in times like that if we're not careful. Sometimes bad things have to come. They're not punishment. You remember at Cedar Point, maybe they still have them, the little cars you drove around. You know, you get in it, and you get your dad or mom to get in it, and you get to drive. And, and you can kind of steer it, but 
it'll only let you get off so far because there's a metal rail goes down through the middle. Okay, so you've got some steering room, but at the end, it's going to get you to where you started. How many remember what I'm talking about? Do you, do you know as a believer, life is like that? Now, I used to try to drive that car and never hit the rail in the middle. Just, how many know what I'm talking about? You know, just, you felt like you was really driving. The only thing you weren't allowed to do is bump the car ahead of you. I think they'd have been better served if they'd have said, please bump the car ahead of you. I think there would have been less of that. Hear me for a moment. If this is true, and of course it is, God says, I have set before you today good or life and good, death and evil. In modern American Christianity, God sets before us life and good. But he never does the other. In spite of the fact, he said in Job, that I have made the straight crooked. He goes on to say, so that I might once again get your attention. I'm not one who feels like I've got to understand all of God. He says his ways are above my ways and they're past finding out. But what I'm supposed to do is trust him. And so he says here in this verse, listen to me. I'm going to put good things into your life and I'm going to put life into your life. But if I find it necessary to put evil into your life or death into your life, that's none of your business. You just love me. Because, see, we got into trouble. People don't understand Genesis. They, and God created and he said this is good. He had to say it was good because we wouldn't know. He said this is good. All right, it's good. Just like your children. They don't know. You got to tell them. Fire, hot, bad. Okay? Don't touch fire. Be. Wasp, bad. They'll sting you. Don't touch that. Daddy's Twinkie. Don't touch that. That's Daddy's Twinkie. Okay? No touch that. There are some definites in life. Don't touch the Papa's Twinkie. It'll bring you curse and a death. Brussels sprouts. Well, let's not go there. But, but the, the children only know what is good and what's bad because you tell them. It's been said that children are only born with two fears. Fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. We teach them every other fear. And we're supposed to, as believers, get to the place where we have a childlike faith. And what we end up with, one of the passages into victimhood, is when we say, God, explain yourself. Why did this happen? Are you getting this? He's already said why it happened. For your good always. That's what the scripture says. For everything works together 
everything. You know what what about that word everything means? It's all-inclusive. Everything? Yeah, but what about... Yeah, but everything works together for the good. Yeah, I understand. But what about everything works together for the good? Yeah, I understand that. Most of it, but what about... Is he lying to you? Everything works together for the good. And the moment you and I start to push against that, we're playing God. Because he said, I'll bring into your life what I think is best for your life to to meet the absolute goal of getting you into heaven. And if you don't believe him, then you end up living in victimhood. That somehow this tragedy, somehow this event escaped the notice of God and happened, and you want to call him on the carpet for it. Oh, come on now. She showed up at church, and she was tough. She was, I don't know what to say, she was every bit as tall as I am, and she had a, a stern look about her, and she was... And she'd come late, and she'd leave early, so nobody would ever greeted her. Nobody would ever talked to her. And in the service, God says, call her forward. She's back there almost where Pam is. Ma'am, I need you to come. I'm in the middle of preaching. I need you to come. She gives me that look. Yeah, you. She walks forward. She walks right up and gets in my space. And I'm looking eyeball to eyeball her with her. And she said, this better be good. And I know I told you this before, but it was funny because in that moment I thought, great, God, this is going to work because we have agreement. Because I was thinking the same thing of you, God. This better be good. And I'm looking at her and God isn't telling me nothing. I'm like, oh, and she's just staring at me and I'm staring at her. And I'm like, God, I thought maybe if I just faint, you know. You've always got that as a preacher, okay? When you don't know what to do, you can just faint. And all of a sudden, a message in tongues comes forth from some lady in the church. Understand, this lady has never spoke to a person in this building that building. And when the message in tongues was done, Gail Beth interpreted it. And God said to this lady, and he named specific moments in her life when she suffered a tragedy. He said, and when you were five years old and you hid in the back of the closet and you talked to somebody and you asked for it all to go away and you felt like you were all alone. And he specifically named what had happened to her. He said, I want you to know, I was there. And when you were at this age and this happened, I was there. And I saw her stern face just begin to melt like wax in the sun. And, and, and it just come out of her. And what God was doing is, listen to me, listen to me, you got to hear this. He wasn't changing what happened to her. He was letting her know he was there. Are you getting that? It still happened. It was still still an uncomfortable thing. But he was changing it 
because he was letting her know he was there. In victimhood, God isn't there. You feel like in that event in your life that he left you, that somehow he messed up, that somehow this doesn't work right, and yet his word says that everything works together for the good. I used to lament to God. I'd, I'd prayed. I'm like any young man. I want my dad to be proud of me. I want my dad to like me. And as a believer, we were never, we never saw eye to eye on much, but now that I'm a believer, it's even worse. I was blessed to see him give his heart to God just, just a little over a week before he passed away. I was there. I saw him change. In front of my eyes, I saw this this hard, stern man change dramatically. I've never seen such a dramatic change in a person in, in, in just a few moments, so dramatic that a couple of hours later when my mom goes to visit him, she gets home and she calls me. And these are the words out of her mouth. What did you do to your father? She starts crying. And she says, that man that I just visited in the hospital is a man I have waited my whole life for. Days later, he's gone. And I thought, God, how... Are you kidding me? I'm 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 telling you, I moved into victimhood. It's like, God, we, we have something together. Finally. You know, we could talk about stuff together and he wouldn't be treating me like garbage and, and I wouldn't be angry with him. And, and, and then you take him? Where's the fairness in this, God? And I lived in victimhood. That's a horrible place. Because it's not that he quit speaking to you, it's that you don't hear him anymore. If he doesn't tell you that he's sorry for making you a victim, you won't listen. That's all I wanted to hear. You're right, Mike. I messed up on that one. One day I said, you know, God, that's just so unfair. I I know I'm a grown man and it shouldn't matter, but I really wanted my dad to come and hear me preach. I I know I'm not much, but just to have my dad sitting there smiling, how many men know what I'm talking about? Would have meant a lot to me and and he'll never hear, he'll never do that. This is like six years after he's passed away. I said, God, why'd you have to take him? And God said this to my heart. He said, the moment he was sure of heaven, I took him before it changed. And then when I let that settle in, he goes, and about the preaching, he did hear you preach one time. And he got saved. Okay. And then I felt sorry for living in the hood. Because everything does work together for the good. It does. It feels like bad and it feels like evil, 
But the moment I call something in my life evil, I'm actually putting myself in an adversarial position with God. It's like the rails on the cars at Cedar Point. I wanted to turn off and go across the grass and chase down the, the, the Ferris wheel. I wanted to drive down the midway, have everybody see a six-year-old driving a car. But the rails kept me from doing that. The rails were there to keep me safe. He says, but if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. And then Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. Listen, this is a powerful verse. Here's what he says. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you Life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Can you imagine the scene? He's calling the heavens, the stars, the planets, the universes, all the spiritual beings in heaven. He said, hey, everybody, listen up. All of the inhabitants of earth, listen to what I'm about to decree and declare. That I'm going to set before John... Death and life, cursing and blessing, good and bad. And it's up to him what to do with it. Now, you may feel like that's a burden, but that brings a freedom to me. That means I am not destined to be a victim. I'm destined with a chance. I'm destined with the ability to affect my future. got in a wrestling match as a grown man. I should have known better, but I had a sweet brown-haired, brown-eyed girl I was trying to impress. And so I entered, I used to be a great wrestler in school, and I, I entered the tournament as a younger man's sport, but I'm 25, and I, I remember how to do this, and I shouldn't have done it. It was awful. And I need to lose one more pound so I could go in the 191 weight class, and I can't lose that pound, and so I'm in the 192 unlimited class. And I'm put up against this guy that just finished second in the nation in college wrestling, and he's going to Iowa. You know who he lost to? That Rudolph guy that went to the Olympics. That's who he lost to. And that's who I get put up against the first guy. He's only got me by 60 pounds, and I haven't worked out, and I haven't practiced, and I figure this is my chance. Is he sitting in the stand? Yeah, it's ugly. I might need prayer. I did everything I knew to do when the ref said wrestle. And I mean, it's fast. I, I, I dove with this guy so fast. The ref's hand right in the middle going, wrestle, almost slapped me in the face. And I hit him, and he goes down, and I hear the ref say two points. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm not getting shut out anyhow. And then quickly, I get into a cradle. You know what that is? And, and it's the perfect cradle. His arm is locked under my arm, and I've got him, and I'm holding it tight. And, I mean, I'm introducing his knee to his lips, you know, and it's, it's working. 
And if you know this and you do it right, it's over. It's a matter of time. And I hear the ref say three. And I'm thinking, I've got five to nothing. I'm the runner-up in the whole nation. And I'm like, I've got him, I've got him, I've got him. It's over, it's over, it's over. Just like the devil's telling you right now, it's over. And pretty soon I'm, I'm holding him and I'm squeezing him and I'm just waiting for the ref to hit the mat. And I'm thinking, she'll marry me. I'm going to ask her today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She'll marry me now. If there was any doubt, it's cleared now. And then the ref starts blowing the whistle and he's tapping me on the shoulder. And I'm thinking, I didn't hear him hit the mat. It's a trick. I ain't letting go. And he said, son, let go, let go. And I thought maybe the guy was hurt. So I let go. And the guy gets up and he's mad. He's mad. Afterwards, I talked to him and he said, dude, you had me. It was over. He said, it was, that, it was over. I said, what's up? And the ref said, the clock didn't start. We've got to start over. Now the dude's mad. And I see her walking out. No, I just... And they take my five points away. I cried like a girl when I got done. That dude beat me something awful. Somebody should have called the police. It was so bad. I'm not exaggerating to you. This dude was so strong. Every place he grabbed me, like this, there were five bruises. There were just dots all of them. I looked like I had the measles all over my body. Every place he caught, grabbed me was a bruise. Oh, you think it's funny. It's not funny. And I tell you this story this to tell you this. Listen to me. The enemy wants you to think that it's over, but, but you forget that God runs this. And at any moment, he can, God can stop it and start over. Give you another chance. You're not a victim this morning unless you choose to be one. You don't live in that hood unless you choose to live in that hood. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that surely He has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. If that's true, I want to ask you, what are you doing carrying those this morning? If he bore your grief, why are you still playing over that event in your mind? What they said or what they did or what happened? Why is that still being played over and over and over in your mind? As sure as God took your sins to the cross, he bore your grief and sorrows to the cross. And just like it takes faith to allow Him to take your sin away, it takes faith to get up in the morning and say, I'm not going to walk in grief anymore. I'm not going to walk in sorrow anymore. God called me to better things. He has. He's called you to better things. So Ephesians tells us the end of the story. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? You can live in the hood or you can live in heavenly places. It's it's your choice. It's death or life. He said, I'm leaving it up to you. 
I'm leaving it up to you. There's somebody this morning that's standing between you and your relationship with God. You have made a God out of them. God said, I dealt with that sorrow. I dealt with that grief. Leave it on me. Come to me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're here this morning and your burden is more than you can bear, that's a sure sign that God never meant you to bear it. Give it to him. But you don't understand. I don't need to understand. And you don't need to understand. Listen to me. The moment that God gave me that word about my father, it relieved a burden from me. But if I had trusted God with that burden, it would have relieved that burden from me six years earlier. Are you getting this? When I quit saying to God, why God? Why did you let them do that to me? Why did you let them say that? Why did you let that happen? Why did you take them? I'm, I'm accusing God of not being in control. Of not caring. Not being compassionate. Not understanding me. That's a sacrifice to a strange God. The God that we serve and the God in this word. He loves us passionately. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But he doesn't deliver it into victimhood. Because in victimhood you can't hear. You can't see. You live in heavenly places, then you're blessed with all spiritual blessings. If you live in heavenly places. If your mind is set on things above and not on the earth then you're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But if you get your eyes down here and you want to understand why and how and how does this fit and how does this work and how could you, God, and why did this and why did that, and are you sure, God, then you're living in victimhood. Because he either loves you passionately and knows what he's doing or he doesn't. There's no middle road with him. Everything in my life, works together for my good. Good and life, evil and death, work together for my good. If it wasn't that way, would we serve him? And just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you remember when you were in high school or maybe you were in school and they had they picked teams? You remember that? They, they, they picked teams. Okay, I'll take that guy. Anybody ever in here, you were one of the last people picked? Just be honest for a moment. Okay. I'm not the only one. In fact, I, I remember even one time playing on a church softball league. And I had a coach. Um, yeah, we won't go there. Okay, <laughs> we won't go there. But Coach Dave, I want to play left field. I'm pretty good. No, that's for my brother. But could you go manage the end of that bench right over there? Is it, it needs managed real good. Well, not really. It was right field. But that's, right field is as close as you can get to the bench in baseball. If, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. 
just go out there and make and just don't do anything. Just I'm exaggerating. But God has chose you. Do you know that? I, I'm not going to, I'm not, I can't explain it. I can't explain predestination. I can't explain it. I can't, I can't explain when it says many times in the word of God that you are a chosen people. Okay? But I can't ignore it either. Here's the closest I can come. Is that God made a choice. And because I have a heart to go after God, I was part of that choice. Does that work somewhat? You're here this morning not because you had nothing else to do or not because we have the best air conditioning. Okay? You're here this morning because something inside of you, do you know what I'm talking about? It's pulling you. And you can't get away from it, can you? It just pulls. It just, I can't neither. It just pulls you. Sometimes I've got upset with him and wanted to run away from him, but something pulled me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It, it just pulls you back to him. You get wounded and you want to move into the hood and he pulls you back out and he, he just, there's something that pulls you. There's something draws you. Well, that means you've been chosen. You have been, he looked through time before this planet was ever spoken to existence, before Genesis 1 and 2, and God says, all right, I want Tim on my team, and I want Becca on my team. And In fact, I see awesomeness in Tim, and I see awesomeness in Becca, and it can only be brought out if I put the two of them together. they're going to drive each other nuts for a while. Because in, because in doing that, I'm not picking on you guys, you're just up close. Okay? Listen, and because of that, they will know that this glory that's in them is in an earthen vessel. So that when he does something through Tim and he does something through Becca, that they'll know that, you know, this isn't really us because we're kind of garbage. Let me know what I'm saying. And, and, and through that, if they'll just stay together, through this ups and downs of life, they'll not only draw closer to me, but as they draw closer to me, they'll find themselves drawing close to each other. And they'll live in a relationship of forgiveness and forbearance. I'm glad Gail Beth isn't just like me. I mean, besides the obvious. Don't laugh, please. Everybody else was holding back. You could have held on. Be- because the, 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 the friction of, of marriage will clean off the rough places. You know what I'm talking about. And it'll fill in the voids. It'll challenge you and it'll bless you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you're not married. Married people know exactly what I'm saying. But he chose you. Stevie chose you. Get out of your head that you chose him. No, he chose you. He said, Judy, I want you. 
before the foundation of the world and that you would be holy and without blame before him in love. You've got to get that in love part. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfectly holy. Oh, you're not either. None of us are. He calls us holy, not because we are, but because that's what we're called to be. And he loves us to give us fuel for the journey. He spoke to those things which were not as though they were. If he called me garbage, then I would be garbage because what he says happens. Does this make any sense? So, but what he says, it changes things. Let there be light. And the elements of the universe that are necessary to create light came together and obeyed his voice. And he said, let there be. And so when he says to you and I, they're holy, it's not because we're living life and he doesn't see the secret sin and that we're perfect. It's because that, that's the energy, that's the word, that's the development, that's the power to, to make that happen in our life. Because where he's at, that's what you are. And this is the lifeline to you and I calling us into holiness. And it's in love. He, he loves you not because you're holy. He loves you so that you become holy. And if spouses could just start loving each other until their spouse is a good spouse. Instead of dangling love when they change. God chose you. He chose you. Rarely ever happened. But when God lined up humanity, he pointed at me and said, I'll take him. Could you stand to your feet this morning? That's Bishop Michael Rice, lead pastor of Encounter. More messages from Pastor Rice are available at our website, godenc.com. You can subscribe to our regular podcast through our website or on iTunes. Find us on Facebook under Encounter.